Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mail Plus. I am joined this week as every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Hello Imogen. Well, you can say that a bit more gusto. Oh sorry. <laughs> Imogen Edwards-Jones, who has been to an exercise class. I Yes, I can barely move. No, I really can't. It was quite hard coming down the stairs. It's <laughs> First Pilates class in what, 20 years? Probably 20 mm. years, yes. Very good. I know. But you, on the other hand, well, I've been trying to work out in order to uh, tone my gut. You, on the other hand, have been uh, saving Clarkson, well, that rare species. I know. I did feel quite sorry. I mean, he is obviously all manner of rude names that we can't mention mm. but uh, can I just say something I really like him I know I, 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 really, he's, he's, I he's, do like him he makes me laugh yeah. I, I think he's funny and uh, he also drinks more rosé than a hen night more, <laughs> and I, I think there's a I, you know he just adds to the gaiety of nations I, I agree I th- what he said about Meghan Markle was extremely unpleasant very rude mm. but he apologised once and now what I find a bit sort of difficult is this idea of Clarkson who's this sort of great sort of obnoxious silverback mm. sort of groveling to Harry and Meghan I know and so he did a second apology and then they were really unmagnanimous mm. and then were really rude back and basically said it's not enough you have to <laughs> strip naked and crawl through Montecito yes. on your face yeah. with a I don't know a chicken up your bum yes. before we'll even contemplate so and I think that's just uh, no because yes. I think the thing is that we all make mistakes mm. I make them on a regular basis and if you can't apologise and your apology be accepted and everyone move on instead of which you know Harry and Meghan just want him basically defenestrated I know because they've decided that he's uh, also, he shouldn't be allowed who made them the king of queen of culture right and also basically it was up, if it was up to them the only person who'd be allowed to be in any newspaper would be Omid Scobie Omid and perhaps she could perhaps have a fashion column <laughs> she could have a nice fashion column mm. and maybe he could write something about beards beards yes and everyone would be lovely and grateful yes or oat so, milk yeah I've, I, <laughs> so I just think it's just no you don't get to decide I, mean, I agree what no. he said was awful but actually what Harry says in his book about a national newspaper editor oh, being, awful. Uh, being a pustule on the bum of humanity or something, I can't remember the exact words, yeah. is equally unpleasant. Yes. So, you know, horses for courses. Yes. Um, why is it okay for him to be incredibly sexist and unpleasant and it's not okay for Clarkson? I don't see why. I agree. I agree. So, so having, slay you. So slay me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so obviously, I'm being cancelled next, so that's fun. Yes, um, yes. Well, Clarkson yeah. and I can go and live in the same cardboard box under a bridge. Yes, we can have a bottle of rosé each. You'll be fine. Yeah, and people can come and pee on us, and that'll be fine. <laughs> and then everyone will be happy. Anyway, talking of um, rosé. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I was interested, because a new Sauvignon Blanc, a new English Sauvignon Blanc, oh, yes. has been awarded mm. the highest accolade possible by industry professionals which I think is a bit of a game changer because obviously English wine is supposed to be French will be livid French livid Italians probably not that livid but you know if they They can bother to be cross they might be a bit cross anyway so I'm interested in this I'm interested in the whole emergence of English Mm. wines which I think is probably to do with climate change yeah probably yes are we doing this just because I've been trying to do dry Daniel and you're just to annoy you just to annoy me okay absolutely okay great so we're going to be joined by two wine experts to tell us if it's time to think Mm. about buying British next time the one problem with the British wine industry I find is that it's all very expensive it is I mean you can't get a nice bottle for under sort of 20 pounds which is we've been much. drinking a very very nice called English Nuremberger or, yes. or something what's it called Newtonberg Newtonberg or, or something yes it's, it's absolutely it's an English sparkling isn't it it's English sparkling mm. wine I drank it all over Christmas very successfully 
Well, I bought a case once from a Welsh vineyard called oh. White Castle, which was very nice, but actually just a bit too expensive. Anyway, we're joined now by the editor-in-chief of the drinks business, Patrick Schmidt, mm. and Helen McGinn, international wine judge and author of the Knackered Mother's Wine Club. Oh, that sounds good. Hello to you both. How are you? Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. hello. Well, we were discussing earlier mm. teeth. Teeth. You can't just jump in with teeth. Yes, no I can. One, Why not? No one knows what to understand. Well, it's okay. We can catch up. Okay. The listeners are not stupid. <laughs> Before we started recording, we were talking about your teeth, Patrick. Mm. Apparently, in your profession, bad teeth are a hazard. It is an occupational hazard. I think it's the combination of the fact that wine stains mm. yes. and the next day the need for large amounts of black coffee. Oh, oh. yes. So there's a, 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 a I thought double you didn't onslaught. Swallow, though. I hate case. to be rude. But I thought. <laughs> 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 Sorry? <laughs> I thought. Sorry, I thought you didn't. Sw- I know. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry it's turned into a porn cast. I thought you didn't. I thought you, I, that's what I mean. You're not supposed to swallow no, it. No, but they go. Yeah, like Hannibal Lecter. You've got to swill it. You swill it. Yeah, you've got to swill mm. it round your mouth. Okay. You do everything but swallow. Right. You snort. You swill. You slurp. Snort. But you don't drink it. <laughs> oh. Well, you don't snort up your nose, but you make. You make. Sometimes you make some. Noises through your nasal cavities right. just to, uh, to draw up the It aromas. sounds irresistible, <laughs> I have to say. Do, do you get does, smashed, though, yeah. by it's the end attractive. of it? How many wines are you um, tasting at once? I've pretty much capped at about 60 or 70. <laughs> and after that, I reckon I've probably consumed about two glasses of oh. wine. Oh. But, you know, you, you can, you know, process a unit How an do you hour, cleanse your so palate between tastings? I don't, because I want to kind of compare the wines. Oh. But the one thing you should do afterwards is perhaps have a piece of cheese. Oh. oh. Because it neutralizes oh, the acid. The okay. But what, what you also, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm thrilled. I was interested to know that you're a wine master. Apparently, you can do a master's in wine. Mm. I, if I'd known that, I would have not done my career. I've definitely done a degree in <laughs> wine. You've done journalism. Not I mean, actually, I, I could probably take a degree in wine now. What does it? What does involve doing a degree? And what is involved in doing a wine degree? Having done a degree, mm. I can tell you that. The Master of Wine program is, is not fun. I mean, there are fun oh. things, but it's the hardest thing I've done. How long did it take? By a long shot. I did it in five years. Five? One of the first people who tutored me when I started, mm. it took him 17 years, what? which uh, when I relayed that to my Goodness. wife, she said, you're not taking taking this on. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very it's a very long, painful period of studying. Patrick is very, actually being very, very high modest. Failure rate. Is he? You're being very modest, Patrick, because there are actually only about 400 in the world, something like wow. that. Wow. Aren't there? Yeah. Masterful yeah. wine people. He's very special. Yes. Yeah. And does that make you yeah, fun to go out to dinner with? Do you or have? Not? Do you have a special? <laughs> 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 MW stands for something different in my house, uh, but I won't, I won't say it on this podcast. Well, listen. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. <laughs> but you can imagine what the W stands for. Yes, we can. <laughs> no, wonderful is what it stands. Yes, for. wicked. Wicked. Yeah. Let's talk about this English wine, mm. which has won this prize. Is this legitimate? Helen, what do you think? Have you drunk it? Is it nice? So I was really surprised when I heard about it, but also sort of not surprised because mm. I have to say there's not very much Sauvignon Blanc planted in England at all. It's one of the, you know, there's literally just tiny patches mm. of it at the moment. But funnily enough, one of my favourite English wines is a Sauvignon Blanc, not the one that won the silver, Patrick. Mm. I've got one that's actually grown in a walled garden very near me in uh, Limington in Hampshire. Mm. And it's, there's only about half a hectare of it. And the maker, the producer makes a Sauvignon Blanc. And when I first tried it a couple of years ago, I could not believe what I was tasting. I couldn't believe I was tasting such a good Sauvignon Blanc 
that had been grown on English soil. It was just completely mind-blowing to me. But I was thrilled. So that one is called Firmament A from a producer. Charlie Herring is the name, Mm. but it's made in such tiny quantities that literally he makes it and it's all sold before Mm, uh, he doesn't. I mean, a a handful of bottles go to the shop. But I was so thrilled to see this one had won a silver. What's this one called again? I've forgotten. Worcester. They're a great producer. Oh, yes, Worcester Valley. And they make lovely, lovely wines. But yes, it was thrilling to see a Sauvignon Blanc win such a big medal. So, Patrick, how does English wine differ from, say, French or Italian? I mean, am I right in thinking that the best English wines tend to be white? I mean, we're not very good at reds, are we? Yeah, I mean, we... Yeah, let's be honest. Uh, there, there is. I've had one quite nice English red wine, which was a Pinot Noir from Gusborne. Mm. Then Helen, you may may be able to list some others, but yeah, we struggle. A bit I to personally white, consider red, Pinot Noir to be a white, basically. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't say that was a red wine. That's my it's favorite, a sort of a Pinot yeah. Noir. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit weed. It's a bit it's weedy. A bit it's weedy. A bit weedy. No, red, see, so. I like a Nebbiolo, so you know that's oh, not going to cut it for me. Oh, lovely. Um, but yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, please carry on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Piedmontese. And no, no, that's fine. No, no, you're right. Uh, whites, uh, what we do really well is sparkling mm. wine. But when it's still wine, it's definitely whites. And I think Sauvignon, this is a really exciting discovery for me as well, because it shows that England probably, there is a place for, for really fine Sauvignon from England. We have this other grape that's actually a hybrid that's a bit more English called Bacchus. Mm. It's a hybrid grape that was created in the 30s. And that performs really well in the English climate because it's quite early ripening. And it tastes quite like a Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Obviously, people haven't heard of it, so it's a bit hard to sell. But it's something we And is it quite resistant to the weather? I mean, I went to a winery called White Castle in Wales. So there's quite a lot of vineyards up in Wales, Mm. aren't there? And I went there and I footled around and he said that they've got these varieties of grapes which are much better at resisting the terrible English weather and the wet and the cold. Mm. And that they quite a lot of them are from Germany originally. Is this right? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Does that make it sweet? So back... No, it doesn't automatically. Mm. No. I mean, that's the famous style of German mm. whites is, is sweeter, but they make a lot of dry wine. But no, no, you can make the grape in any style, mm. any style you like. But yeah, it's, it is a problem. I mean, the English climate is not well suited to making fine wines, let's face it. So, so we, uh, it's wet, so we, it's windy. We spent the Christmas drinking, was it called Nightember? Mm. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah well, they, I yeah, mean, they were good. real pioneers, really, of English boxing wine. So they... I mean, it was back in, I think, the 80s, about 88, they released their first wine and actually uh, Nightimber and a handful of others mm. really led the way. Gusborne that Patrick's already mentioned and Balfour and Chapeldown. And actually what's really exciting now is seeing lots of these smaller producers like the one that's just won uh, the silver medal. There are lots more smaller producers coming up now making predominantly, a lot of them started with sparkling, but because our temperature is warming up, yes. more and more. I was going to ask that. Is, 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 this, going to be is this a global warning mm. situation? Should I rush out and buy a vineyard in you Wales? You should, yes. Just for the, <laughs> and maybe not well, in Wales. Just for the hell of it <laughs> yeah. anyway. I mean, my, I, know, I think, you know, given that I am called Sarah Vine, yes, I think, you, you know, I should have a vine Vine's vineyard. Vine. Vine's wine. Vine's wine. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good label. Is the method different for English wines? I mean, or are they just doing what everybody else is doing? Is it all the same? Well, our sparkling wine is made in the same way as champagne. Mm. So it gets its fizz from a second fermentation that happens inside the bottle. Right. That's called traditional method or champagne method. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the sparkling wines that we produce here are made in the same way and actually made from the same classic 
grapes that are used in Champagne, so Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. And that's why what we're seeing now is there are more producers making still wine, particularly from Pinot Noir, because there's quite a lot of Pinot Noir planted. Mm. But those are great varieties that suit, as Patrick talked about, a cooler climate. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have a lot of sun here. And actually what we're seeing in recent vintages is we are a wine producing region with a marginal climate. It's either very wet, really hot, really cold. You know, it's not nice and temperate here. Mm. We're a country of extremes, really, which will make it more difficult. I mean, it does make it a lot more challenging. So if you are thinking of buying a vineyard, Definitely go and talk to some people who do it already, Sarah, before you go. <laughs> I'm not really thinking about it. Really. But, but if, <laughs> because if, if there's such, they will tell you it is a labour of love. If there's such a temperature differential, does that mean that one year is vintage and one year is not? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's a real problem with vintage variation in the UK. There's things, so one year you might have a fantastic production mm. and it's really hard from a business perspective because your yields vary so much. You just simply don't make enough wine to make money in mm-hmm. certain years. So you have to kind of get the average out. So... There's a lot of focus. So like this Woodchester story is really interesting because, you know, when we taste, we taste blind. Mm. So you have no idea what you're tasting. We know it's Sauvignon Blanc. We know roughly the price, but it's in a bag. We've got no idea who's made Mm. it. And then something like this comes out and it's really, really striking. And I'm kind of thinking, well, why is it so good? And I think we have quite low yields. A lot of cheaper Sauvignon Blanc maybe is made in high yield. So the wines are a bit lighter Mm. and more dilute. This climate here, lower yields, really concentrated flavours. Also, it's it's a chalky limestone slope, south-facing, so it gets a lot of sun, very good drainage. But you have all these wonderful things that could potentially make English wine fantastic. Mm. And then you throw in this really variable climate Mm. year on year, and that just makes it really difficult. Have you tasted this particular one, and what does it taste like? What would you say were its qualities? I'm I'm sort of thinking we need to get some. Yeah, I'm sad we don't have a bottle here. (laughs) Well, yeah, you could get... I just checked on the website before I came on, just to to see it. It was all there and existing. It's sold out on their their site, which is a real shame. I have tasted it. I have have had a taste. In short, I would say it's a little bit like an alcoholic elderflower and lime cordial. Mm. In a way, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what popped into my head when I drank mm. it. Real freshness yeah. rather than sweetness, but it's got that kind of elderflower yeah. character, that kind of hedgerow sense, mm. and then this limey freshness and this richness, not sweetness, mm. richness. It is dry. It's got a tiny amount of residual mm. sugar, two grams, mm. but it is basically bone dry. It's got a rich and oiliness, uh, viscosity. That's viscosity. We love. I love the word viscosity. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, is that one thinks of the sort of Italian and the French wine markets, which are quite old and also quite tired. Mm. And, you know, it's quite nice to have, a, I mean, obviously there's the Antipodean lot and I don't really like yeah. Australian wines. They're always a bit too sweet for me. Or maybe I'm just buying the wrong ones, mm. but I don't know. I, don't, I just, you, you know. have travelled too far. Maybe they have. But isn't it, <laughs> is it, is it, it's quite nice to have a new market emerging, presumably. It's really funny because we often talk in wine about old world and new mm. world. And traditionally, old world meant Europe, essentially, and new world was everywhere yeah. else. And actually, I think, for a lot of us who are tasting a lot of English wines now, we think of England, particularly England and Wales, as as it's more like a new a world. A new world, yeah. It's right at the beginning yeah. of, of its kind of wine journey. Yeah. There aren't that many places left that are where we are, like just beginning and just finding out. And as you say, a lot of these other countries like France and Italy They've been making wine for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, Mm. and they have lots of rules and regulations in places as to what you can make where and how you make it. 
And we don't have that yet here. Mm. And so it does lend itself to perhaps a more innovative approach from our winemakers. Like they are willing to try different things in different places. And one of England's best kept secrets, actually, going back to the Pinot Noir question, is Essex. I tasted a Pinot Noir from Essex a couple of weeks ago from Danby Ridge, Patrick. I know you'll know it. And Mm. the Pinot Noir from there, because Essex is, people have likened it people have likened it to the burgundy of england i'm not sure we're there <laughs> just yet but it is one of those like someone yes. saying someone is ven- the venice of the north yes i'm no, trying to not. i'm trying to compare, yes, compare right. surely would exactly. to yeah exactly but it is uh, compared with a lot of other regions it is warm and dry mm. one of our mm. warmest driest spots and so there are some very good grapes that are being grown up there that might not be made in Essex because the wineries tend to have been a bit further south. Mm. But I think we'll see a lot more coming from there. And I think we will see a lot more good still wines coming onto the market as long as the weather plays ball. Mm. Patrick, if our wine has been underrated, where else would you go to find a a cheeky little underrated something or other? Turkey or...? Well... Good point. So I, we've just uh, just doing my top wines of, of last year and uh, like the best Cabernet over 100 quid, so not cheap, came from Turkey, the Strandra Mountains made by Chamlika. So again, blind tasting mm. cropped up and then I uh, had a really good uh, Riesling from Kazakhstan. Oh. From all, yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, some, some really odd stuff cropping up and a fantastic you, Chardonnay what, from Greece. What do you have to spend to get it? I mean, OK, so Imogen and I have a thing called Wife Wine. Um <laughs> Which is what we're allowed to drink when I go to her house. Yes, we, there's we wife were, wine. So I is... once went around to Imogen's house and we accidentally opened a bottle of husband wine. And the husband became very angry because... <laughs> he was very cross. He was so cross with us because we'd opened his expensive wine. And actually, he, and he's pointed to this rack. He said, this is the wife wine. Do not drink my wine. Oh. You drink the wife wine. So... <laughs> it's true. It's not a word of a lie, that. honestly. Oh, it's true. Um, Kenton, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, um, so what is a good sort of if you, for the day to day wine? What's a good spend? What's mm. what should I be spending? Because okay. I mean, is it twenty yeah, pounds? Is it fifteen? <laughs> okay. Where does it get substantially better? For, yes, for the, your extra right. three quid. Uh, this is a real bugbear for us in the in the trade. Helen, I'm sure, wants to dive in, but the problem is there's so many fixed costs with wine. Yes. And there's tax, so there's duty already, £2.23, yes. that you need to spend quite a bit to actually get quite a bit of wine. So I think they say, you know, the £5 bottle of wine, you're only getting about 25 pence mm. worth of wine. But if you go up to 10 quid, you're getting almost £3. Mm. So you're getting spending double the price, but getting well over 10 times more wine. My sweet spot is sort of 12 to £20. Mm. So it's quite high. But I find that a lot gets pushed into the kind of 999 because there's a price barrier. Yeah. And yeah. then when you get up nearer 20 pounds, you're getting, you know, eight, Exponent- nine a lot pounds more worth for of your buck, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. I'm far cheaper than Patrick. Hmm. Far cheaper than Patrick. Because <laughs> I was a wine buyer for a supermarket for a decade. Right. And I. Another great uh, job. Really yes. God, all these good jobs. That was another great. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was a bit like being the man from Del Monte, yeah. but just not in a white linen suit. Yeah. And one of the things that happened last year, obviously with a cost of living crisis, were there were suddenly lots of wines came onto the shelves that were under five pounds, mm. which five years ago, you could find here and there, if you dug around a bit, you would find quite a few that were perfectly drinkable. Not, I mean, nothing special, but perfectly drinkable. But I tasted pretty much everything that was under five pounds that came out last year. 
at the various supermarket tastings. And it was so depressing because you just don't really end up with a wine that's got any sense of place. And the flavors are very, it's almost like a hologram wine. You don't, it doesn't even taste of the variety that it is because they have to use trickery to make it mm. palatable really. Mm. And so I think it's a bit of a false economy because yes, you end up spending, you know, less than five pounds on a bottle of wine, but is it very nice? Not really. I would rather spend a bit more mm. As Patrick says, the more you, because duty is fixed, and mm. obviously you've got VAT on top of that, but duty is fixed. So spend a few pounds more, and you do get a lot more for your money. I mean, my sweet spot is more between eight and twelve. I think there is so much good stuff mm. there. But again, like in the old days, you have to root around a bit to find the good ones because there are quite a few mediocre ones in there. And you again, what's the are point? there any are there any well? good wine subscription services? Because what I would like is for someone like you, Helen, or you, Patrick, to just mm. choose my wine and then just send it to me once a month. <laughs> so that I don't <laughs> have wine to well, love. Yeah, wine, so I don't yeah. have to that think about why, it. I mean that's why I wrote the Necker Mother's Wine Club mm. because I wrote that book for people who buy their wine in the supermarket. Mm. And the supermarkets don't really have wine clubs. And the only thing you have to go on when you get there is the back label. So I really wrote the book so you could do your homework mm. ahead. But I think if there was one wine club that I would absolutely give a shout out to in a heartbeat, it's the Wine Society. Mm. Because oh, yes, wine I'm a, Society I, I just cost, recently joined. Yeah. Mm. You pay 40 quid yeah. and then you and they're really That's their it. delivery is really fast as well. Yeah. And, yeah. Almost <laughs> and next day. 40 pounds is your is a one off payment. So you don't have to yeah. pay any more. That's it. But because it's a cooperative, effectively, mm. they can afford to do wines at a really good price. And the wines that they've got under £12, you know, between about 8 and £12, mm. I think that they, they beat most of the supermarkets hands down when it comes to value oh God, for money. I'm so excited. Absolutely I'm actually brilliant. doing the right thing oh, for one. Sarah. Gosh, look at me ahead <laughs> of the curve. Well, anyway, that's good. Yeah, that's excellent wine. Um, I mean, because these English wines are not cheap, are they? they okay. They're sort of well, 20 to by 30. By the sounds of it, they only make about six of them in the garden. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, that's their issue. Yes, they're sort of no, more I mean, of an this, artisan this, thing yes, than anything yes. else. Okay. This Worcester wine, though, it, it, it's expensive for a Sauvignon. It's twenty-one quid mm. or something, but it was actually tasted against Sauvignons at that price or pricier, mm. and it still came out as the Go best. On. So it was pitched against expensive. It wasn't just like pitched against eight quid mm. Sauvignon. Mm. It was pitched in the price band uh, of twenty. And is, to £30, is there so. an on primeur? English wine market yet. I mean, oh, oh what? Oh, I know, I'm just using special yeah. language, <laughs> special <laughs> wine language that only I know because I'm a special expert. Okay. No, no, you know yeah. when you no, buy the wine when it first done and then you lay it down for oh, ten see, years. Yes, yeah. There isn't, but it's a it's a really good question because actually most English wine sells through wine clubs. Oh. It sells direct. Mm. It yeah. amazed me because I was looking at this the other day. It was around 60, 65 mm. percent. Yeah. So although it's not on Primeur, there is a sort of club where you get the offers first and you can buy direct from the winery at, right. at special prices and you get the full range. And, and it's how yeah. most of them operate because they're too small to get into big retailers yeah. and they don't have, you know, obviously then there's so costs. You've got, so you've got to be in the know the then basically in order to get it. Yeah, you've got to be in the know. You've got to sign mm. up and they've got to find you as mm. well, which is hard. But I mean, you yeah. know, you can buy at the cellar door as well. You can visit some of these wineries. Mm. Some mm. They've got good restaurants. Well, they had um, they had a huge jump in interest actually during lockdown mm. because when we couldn't exactly. go out and buy any wine, a lot of people then suddenly realised you could buy online. Mm. And a lot of English producers were very good at moving. Like a lot of them before then had terrible websites, mm. you know, really user unfriendly. 
And actually the great thing that came out of it was a lot of them geared up their sales mm. and their wine clubs and their subscription services. Yes, absolutely. And, and also they make it a bit of a real boom. And it's a bit of a day out. You can go to Denby's in uh, in the Surrey Hills and they have a little wine train that takes you around the vineyard, which is fun. <laughs> yeah. They do, they do. <laughs> It's like it's like, a, it's like a wine theme park. Why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't Lots you invite me? Now as well. <laughs> Sorry? Lots of them have restaurants now as yes, well. Yes, they have oh. restaurants. So, and a lot of these other... Yeah, and yeah. they have sort of... Yeah, not many of them have trains. And they have delis yeah. Yeah. and they have <laughs> other things. some cheese with your so wine. So you can have a little bit of lunchy. Oh, what fun. Yeah, it's lovely. That's a proper day out. We okay, do. I think we're going to have to stop talking about oh, yeah. wine now because there's no more time. Um, well, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you, Helen. Thank you, Patrick. Go and buy some English wine. I know. I presumably Woodchester won't be back on the menu until next no, year. No, we'll have to order it ahead. Has it been sold out, I presume? Yeah. <laughs> so do you think there's a second hand? your order in. Do you think there's a sort of black market on eBay like yeah. there was for that nail polish that <laughs> Chanel did? <laughs> Or that other drink, Pride. I just go and go, yeah, go and rifle through Patrick's wine rack. Oh, I bet. Yeah, no, no, it's it's gone, it's gone. I'm sorry, it, it was it was the wife's wine. wine. It's rack. gone. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank that you. was Patrick Schmidt of the Drinks Business and Helen McGinn of the Knackered Mother's Wine Club. I think that sounds like a great book, which I'm going mm. to go and buy. <laughs> Love Island, oh. boo hiss, has returned to our screens. While the show has legions of fans, mm. after all of them sharing one brain cell, after an <laughs> almost, almost a decade on it, sorry, I'm being rude because my daughter loves it. Oh, yes, I know she uh, does. Some are yet to be seduced by the show. But what we have got is the brilliant Judy James, who is a communication and body language expert. And we're going to have a chat with her about Love Island. Mm. So, Judy, I watched this last night for my sins. And it was so boring, so unbelievably (laughs) boring. I was so bored. All it is, is sort of surgically enhanced people jiggling up and down in swimming pools full of foam and then snogging each other. I really don't understand. And one of the girls had her bra on upside down. And I asked Beatrice oh, about that. I said, why is her bra on upside down? She said, mummy, that's the fashion. It like, is the fashion, No, yes. your bra is on upside down, darling. Yes. It looks ridiculous. It's very cool to do Anyway, that. can you please help us, Judy, because we're really baffled. <laughs> Well, possibly not, but um, I I suppose the way to approach it is that it's basically Jane Austen meets Anne Summers. So uh, the plots are very Jurassic insofar as there's women that want to find men and men that want to find women, and then there's this kind of matchmaker that puts them together. Um, It's actually quite old-fashioned. I know it was first sold as a show where they have sex on screen, but it's become... A lot more prim in a way since then oh. so you have to understand the different degrees of kissing there's a kind of oh no i won't kiss him until we've sort of slept in the same bed for about a week mm. or something it's very weird mm. but then the producers make them kiss which is what you saw well all the night. games they... seem to involve kissing you can't do a game oh, without having a kiss oh, really? yeah no it they're seems brutal. to be yeah they're brutal and uh, toe sucking mm. um, <laughs> i mean all of that gets the pictures in the papers yeah. the mm. next day mm. but it's not really reality. It's, it's just a sort of a set of very mannered, can we con the public into believing that we've fallen in love? Sometimes they go off and then supposedly get married or don't get married or have relationships after the show, don't they? But what I can't understand is it's obviously really popular because it was on once a year and now it's on twice a year. And so oh. obviously people watch it and they love it. And I can't understand why does it not trigger the part of my brain? that it seems to trigger for everybody else. What's wrong with me? Am I missing something? 
No, no, no. So uh, perhaps it's what's right with you in actual fact. I mean, I think the time to worry could be when you start thinking, I'm quite enjoying this, actually. I mean, I've got hooked on programmes like Below Decks. I can. No, I have to say, I quite like a Below Deck. No, and don't sound guilty when you admit to it. I mean, I, I've lost. I don't the guilt even know what below, oh, deck below, is. Oh, below deck is excellent. It's excellent, but I mean, there is no narrative, which is what. Well, what I, the I, narrative I, seems mm. to be. I think what other thing I think the thing that I dislike about it is that it seems to be me- really mean mm. to me. I mean, I think perhaps this goes back to my teenage years or you know I was always someone's fat friend usually <laughs> actually usually Imogen's fat friend that is not true and so I was always the one that the boys never wanted to dance with Imogen was always oh, attracted no, 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 she was no, literally no. beating them off and I was sitting there in the corner being frightfully serious and a bit shy and I didn't really I don't know I didn't really like dancing or any of that's not things. true put the rolling stones on and you're <laughs> straight on, on there, and I will dance, but you know I wasn't really. and so I always feel really sorry for the ones who don't get picked mm, it's and, quite brutal and, and, it? and in this one they have to go and sit on a bench what? if they don't get picked what, like a subs bench like a sort of su- yes literally like a subs bench you have to go sit there in your bikini with your bra on upside down <laughs> thinking about why you are not sexy enough to be chosen by someone who basically looks like they're, they're a male gay porn star it's very weird I have to say there's an element of schadenfreude as well because you sit there remembering back as I do to when I was a shy kid at school that didn't get picked mm. for games and things like that mm. but you watch the ones that do get picked the ones that have had all the enhancements mm. and the breasts and everything and the white teeth and they still get treated re- they still end up in tears yes I know but the point is the message off. is the message is if you want to get picked by a boy you have to go to Turkey and have <laughs> all your teeth you know made luminous and silicon put in your bosoms and it's got nothing to do with any of the things that relationships are about mm. which is kindness friendship putting up with people's farts all that sort of stuff they're all fun or fun exactly humour anything like that I mean it, just... I'm very worried I'm worried that you you think that relationships are all about putting up with people's farts well that's just... not exactly it's not exactly Heathcliff and Cathy is it really <laughs> no but I'm a pragmatist yes <laughs> she's also just got divorced so that might actually be indicative of, of, of the lack of no no, they, no, no, they, no I mean farting is not Jermaine to men, but yes, that is true. <clears throat> yes, that is true. Let's not talk about farting. I always end up talking about farting on this <laughs> podcast. I'm obsessed with farting. It's ridiculous. But Judy, there's a very weird concept of the beauty that we're all supposed to be admiring in these people. Yeah. That it all comes, you know, out of a surgeon's office, as it were. Yeah, and that I have to say, the one thing that really annoyed me about the program was the fact that it was providing, and it's not as bad this season, but it's been providing these very stereotypical role models, particularly for women, Mm. where to even stand a chance Mm. of pulling a man, you have to have the enhanced boobs, you forgot the bum, Mm. the bum has to have implants, Mm. teeth have to be done, the lips have to have fillers in them, otherwise you're not normal, and Mm. that worried me. They've actually got rid of that a bit this season. There's a woman on there that I thought, I might just give her a run for the money in the bra department. Mm. But, I mean, that that's very unusual. Mm. The other problem with that was that they got a lot of women in particular, and then the men have to have a six-pack, etc. Mm. So there is a degree of pressure for the men. But you were actually watching these programmes feeling quite weird yourself because mm. you've not had all that work done. And I can imagine younger girls thinking, well, I will never, ever pull a man. Well, no, I mean, this is the thing is, I do think it promotes a completely unrealistic. The thing about plastic surgery is that if you're old 
crones like me mm. and Imogen, then maybe you might have a little bit to make you look a bit less old. And I think that's fine. Mm. But what they're talking about with these girls is interventions that totally change your appearance, that yes, make you look like someone completely different, yeah. which is completely... And the other thing is, is that it's very hard for someone like me to follow the show because they all look exactly the same. <laughs> and I can't really tell yes. them apart. The only thing that distinguishes them is their hair colour. Yes. Um, and the boys are the same. They all seem to look the same. Mm. I don't really understand. It's, it's like... I suppose it's like when you look at toddlers and you think they all look the same, but it is it is because of the plastic surgery. And then also this thing where they're promoting this sort of rather nasty, cheap fashion. I know last year they did a sort of deal with eBay because they were trying to be more woke about, you know, recycling old bikinis. But until then, they've been doing sort of deals with pretty little things. And they're all, you know, fast disposable Chinese fashion made by 12-year-olds in factories in terrible places. And mm. I just think... The sort of morality of it. But again, it doesn't seem to bother the viewers. The viewers don't care that people in, you know. But how that's what's so weird. You know, Beatrice's generation is the wokest generation of all time. And yet it's promoting fast fashion, plastic surgery and sexism. Exactly. So I don't understand it. It's just a, it's a mysterious phenomenon. Maybe people think that it gives them a rest. I mean, where you do begin to get maybe something that is a little bit more admirable, and it happened, I used to work on Big Brother, and mm. it, it kind mm. of started there, is that the younger women that watch it do seem a lot more aware of when the guys are behaving badly, and they mm. know to call it out rather mm. than not noticing it. So you do get a lot more mention of things like bullying, ghosting, the kind of behaviours that I think years ago people would have thought were the norm mm. are now actually being called out. So there is a degree, I, I'm not really standing up for it, but there is a degree of maybe becoming more assertive, but you're becoming more assertive. And when you're talking about the fashions, I mean, the amount of fabric they're wearing is so minimal, I don't <laughs> even think to be honest. Judy, have we changed a lot as a country since the beginnings of the Big Brother, which I know you were part of? Because the naivety of us when we first went into that sort of reality TV was very different from now. I'm, I'm sort of thinking the Love Islanders must be much more knowing as a people than you know, when you first started doing Big Brother? I think they're knowing, but they still don't get it. They're still Icarus flying towards the mm. sun of fame and thinking that happiness will come from the fact that they can sit out. A bit. I, I'm using the word reality show with, with inverted commas, though, because shows like Big Brother, I would argue, were nearer to genuine reality because once they got put in the house they weren't really touched from the outside at all. So you were watching, in a way, human behaviour mm. a lot of the time. What we're watching now, and I think this worries me a little bit that people think that they're watching something that is reality TV. Mm. I mean, I won't refer to Love Island, but I've worked on so many of them. And with some of these what are called scripted reality, as you know, the lines are being fed to people that they then repeat and Well, they're, be, they're being or, manipulated, aren't they? They're, I mean, they are being manipulated into doing certain things. It's a funny thing because they're, they're manipulating us as well because they're also going in there hmm. and manipulating the viewer into believing that they've fallen in love so that they can win the £40,000. So it kind of works both ways. Hmm. Going back to your question about Big Brother, I mean, I know they're bringing it back, but I don't know in what form they're going to be able to do that hmm. because things that used to go on when you just left people alone mm. would not be allowed these days. They always worked through, so you would generally come to a conclusion where the nicest person would win and the public would look at the baddies and the bad behaviour, mm. but you had to watch it. That was the thing. Mm. 
and you wouldn't be able to do that in these more woke times mm. it would be incredibly shocking to people you know that oh they, nasty be, nick can you imagine nasty, Na- nick. nasty nick in the first series yes. i mean and, yeah. and also I mean, in a way he was he was quite mild in a way when mm. you look at some of the fights that used to mm. break out i mean you know there were moments like fight night where it nearly <laughs> yeah. did get do down you remember when he tried was it him it? who tried to escape over the fence i mean you're a body language expert so when you watch it can you tell that they're just basically lying about everything i mean how do you what are the tells so if i'm going to watch love island which obviously i'm going to have to do because <laughs> i'm basically in the role of co-watcher with my daughter mm-hmm. i'm just interested to know you know what should i be looking out for you know other tells that i could you know well with big brother you could look for tells you could look for when people were trying to pretend when they were trying to fool us when they were being natural because you had so many cameras with something like Love Island, I mean, the easy answer is that you're never watching what I would call natural, spontaneous mm. body language. I mean, a lot of those scenes, I don't know, I've not worked on the show, but from what I imagine, a lot of those scenes have been done once and then a second time. Oh, really? I mean, oh. Some, of the, some of the ex-islanders have said that the big scenes around the fire pit, they've sat there for hours filming it. So you're getting reaction shots. Oh my God, I didn't know um, that. Okay, so I'm... You're getting reaction yeah. shots. So probably they did that reaction about half an hour ago to something else, but it looks as though it's oh. been... I, I don't know this for 100% sure mm. because I've not worked backstage on it, but generally I think that's the way that they tend to film it. It's a little bit for me. I mean, my other job, what I spend doing most of the year doing is is analysing politicians. So for me, it's like a day at the House of Commons at the dispatch box. You know, mm. you're watching the body language and trying to see, are you trying to do that to persuade us of one mm. thing? And what am I seeing? under It's easy with politicians because I've probably watched them for years. So mm. I've got a kind of um, an idea of what they would normally look like mm. and how they're trying to project. But with the Love Islanders, again, there is a kind of bland. It, it's they all tend to say the same lines. Yeah, they're homogenous, they aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So you're not generally seeing very much that no. I would call particularly natural. So it's like an excavation. It's mm. like a dig for me to try and get something that looks a little bit more spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Well, this conversation with you is much more interesting than any episode of Love <laughs> Island. I should just like to point that out. Thank you very this is much. True. That was communications and body language expert Judy James. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. Listener.